Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. This series looks at some of the most pivotal passages in Scripture, inviting us to uncover essential truths for followers of Jesus. Here's today's message. The scripture reading this week is from Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 9. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of our fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You may have noticed that I have entitled the sermon this morning, The Challenge of Authentic Faith the challenge of authentic faith. It may seem a bit unorthodox and a bit of an unorthodox way to begin a sermon, but let me ask you this question. Having heard the reading of the first part of Isaiah 58, how are you feeling about my choice of title? That's a bit of a grandparent question because my three-year-old grandson, who's actually downstairs today with us, has been known to come in and declare his plans for the day that he's going to spend with us and say, how are you feeling about that, Papa? (laughs) Well, let me tell you how I'm feeling about this title that I've chosen, because having chosen the title and then subsequently to that spent hours seeking to enter into the spirit of Isaiah chapter 58, my feeling right now is that the title that I've chosen is intellectually accurate. Because I believe that the underlying message of this chapter is unmistakably an urgent call to practice faith with authenticity, wholeheartedly. But I also feel like it's a title that's a little bit, what should we say, anemic. A little bit cerebral. Doesn't quite capture the the spirit, the heart, the passion with which these words come to us. I don't know if you noticed, God is speaking forcefully and with great passion to his people. There's some heat 
to his words. Shout it aloud, he begins and carries on. Did you feel some of that heat? Let me suggest a possible, more provocative title which I chose not to use because a risk of it being perhaps misconstrued. This title also gives away a little bit of application that we're gonna get to. What about this title? The Risk of Blaspheming God by Attending Church. If that's a bit shocking to you, then you're beginning to capture some of the the passion with which God is speaking in this chapter to us today. And so I invite us to pay attention to these words. I would like to call this chapter immense. Of course, I'm a preacher. We want everything we say to be considered immense, right? But I want to suggest to you that as I try to capture Isaiah 58 with its full power that I use the word immense in the sense of power because it's a, it's a chapter that quite honestly packs a punch. We need to be very careful this morning to hear it accurately. We need to understand it in its original context. We need to be careful in bringing it and applying it to our own context. We might ask this question as a kind of underlying question of our study this morning we might ask this, what is it that has God so worked up that he would speak in such passionate tones? I'd like to look mostly at the first nine verses of this chapter that were read to us from three perspectives. I wanna suggest to you that this chapter is immense, first of all, because of its tone Secondly, this chapter is immense because of its message. And thirdly, it's immense because of its application. So let's talk for a few minutes about the tone. What words, if I were to ask you, as you heard the words read to us and as you look at, look at them on your service sheet, how would you describe the tone of the words that you see? Well, if we were a smaller group setting, I would invite your feedback, but let me suggest some words. You can add them to me later if you like, the, the, the ideas that you have. I, I would use, first of all, the word forceful, beginning with shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet gives us a signal that God has something to say that he doesn't want to be missed, and so it's forceful. I wonder what you notice as you come to verse two. I wasn't quite sure how to describe this because these words are coming from God to his people, so I'm uncertain whether to use this word, but as I read the, the tone of verse two, it seems like there's a hint of sarcasm there almost. I don't know if that's the right word, but listen to what he's saying to the people in verse two. Day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near to them. Well, it's also a chapter that is blunt because God doesn't hold back. Look what he says at the end of verse four, you cannot fast as you do today 
and expect your voice to be heard on high. And so there's all this language of challenge which is so powerful and strong. But I also want to point out we won't spend a lot of time looking at these parts of the, of the chapter, but I also want to point out that this bluntness and this force of language that's coming to us is not simply to condemn, but it's to invite a response. It's to invite a response. And so it's an urgent call for a response. And so we read what we heard in verse 9. Then you will call, God says. If you respond, you will call, and I will answer you. You will cry for help, and God will say, here am I. So it's a blunt challenge, a very strong challenge, that is an invitation to respond. Perhaps you could think of other words to describe this blunt challenge, but what I would like to do is remind you that Isaiah 58 is not unique in the language of Scripture in carrying this tone I'd like to take you to two other examples, and we won't take time to analyze them, but what I do want you to do is to feel them, because we're talking about tone here. We're talking about what is, what is the strength of language. Listen to the strength of language in these other two passages. I'm gonna take you back, first of all, to Isaiah chapter one. In Isaiah chapter one, God is speaking, and again, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people, and he's talking about the way in which they're conducting their religious rituals, the way they're conducting their sacrifices. Listen and feel the words of God here. The multitude of your sacrifices, Isaiah 1, starting at verse 11. What are they to do with me, says the Lord? I have had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before to appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. And it gets worse. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. We turn to Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is busy talking to the religious leaders of his day. And guess who he quotes? He quotes Isaiah. Mark chapter seven, verses six through eight says this, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Well, hearing this language, we return to the underlying question that we talked about earlier. What is it that has God so worked up that he would speak in such passionate tones? And so we turn 
our attention back to Isaiah 58, where we see chapter 58 is not only immense in its tone, it's also immense in its message, and we need to now ask the question, well, really, what is the message of Isaiah 58? I would like to propose two statements that are an attempt to summarize the message, and I wanna say that these are summaries of not only the message of Isaiah 58, but of the many of the challenge passages of scripture. If you were here last week, we were noticing the invitational passages of scripture that are peppered throughout the story of the Bible. A God of love is reaching out to the hearts of sinful and rebellious people and inviting them back to relationship with himself. And there's so many invitational passages throughout the story of the Bible. But then there are also these challenge and warning passages. Isaiah 58 is one of them. So let me propose these two statements just in an attempt to try to summarize the message. Let me say with this first statement, when religious practice is emptied of God's love, it becomes meaningless at best and sometimes blasphemous. When religious practice is emptied of God's love, it becomes meaningless at best and sometimes blasphemous. We'll come back and look at that. Let me give you the second statement right here to compare it. It's kind of the opposite. The statement says this, when religious practice is formed and shaped by our act, our act of response to God's passionate love for us, then his priorities become our priorities. All right, let's look at each of those in turn. First statement, when religious practice is emptied of God's love, it becomes meaningless at best and sometimes blasphemous. Think this through with me, all right? In Isaiah 58, what is the religious practice that's in focus? It's fasting, right? In the Isaiah 1 passage that we read, the view is expanded to include the practice of sacrifices, gathering in the house of God, the practice of public prayers. And God uses very strong language to denounce the way in which his people are practicing these things. What's happening here? You might well say, and I would be very pleased if you would say to me, well, just this week I was reading Exodus and Leviticus. And I was reading there how it was God who established this whole system of sacrifices and offerings and priests and rules about how to offer your priests so that they're acceptable to God. It was God who established them. And if we're thinking of fasting, as in Isaiah 58, you might say to me, well, just this week I was reading the prophet Joel and I came to Joel chapter two and verse 12, and I read these words, God is inviting his people and saying, return to me, this is one of these invitational passages, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So how is it that God on the one hand approves and instructs people on how to do these physical rituals and practices, but now he is condemning them? I propose to you that we might think about it this way. The people of God 
in Isaiah's day had taken these good God-appointed religious practices and had stripped them of their life-giving foundational principle. Let me say that again. People of God in Isaiah's day had taken these good practices, these good physical things that they were to do in order to come and worship God, and they had stripped away their life-giving foundational principle. And what is that foundational life-giving principle? Let me suggest to you, it's love. It's love. It's first of all about God's passionate love for his people. And secondly, it's about people's feeble and imperfect attempts to come back to love him. And the whole system of sacrifices was designed in the time of Moses so that people could come close to the God who loved them, God who is holy as we were singing about, and these people are full of evil. They cannot approach God without some sacrifice. And so the sacrifices were a way for them to rejoin with this relationship with the God who loves them so much. But it was always about love. Way back there in the time of Moses, this was made abundantly clear in the establishment of what what became known as the Shema, a foundational statement of faith for God's people Israel. Do you remember what what that sounded like? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter six, again, verses four through six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What should we do? What should be characteristic about our relationship with God? Love, love the Lord your God. How? With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I'm giving you, where are they to live? They're to live in your hearts. The whole point of these physical religious practices is to facilitate this relationship between God and his often rebellious people. If that heart of love is stripped away from that religious practice, then that physical action is stripped of its meaning and has the potential to become blasphemous. Let's consider how this plays out in Isaiah 58, which we've read as an example. The people are fasting. What is fasting? Well, fasting is a good discipline. It's a good discipline where we sacrifice food for a period of time in order to feel the pangs of hunger. And as we feel those pangs of hunger, we can be physically reminded that all of our needs are met in God. We don't fulfill our needs ourselves. Everything comes to us from the good God who loves us. And it provides us, fasting provides us an opportunity not only to worship him, but also to love him more and more as the supplier of all of our needs. It's a good discipline. But notice what's happening in in Isaiah's day, verse three and four, yet, God says to these people, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. What's happened here? The life-giving principle of love has been stripped away from this very good discipline of fasting. And it becomes empty. And to the extent 
that people's hearts are torn in the opposite direction, it becomes blasphemous. It's odorous in God's nostrils. So let's turn the corner and look at our second statement. When religious practice is formed and shaped by our active response to God's passionate love for us, what happens is that God's priorities become our priorities. So then we need to ask the question, okay, what are God's priorities? As in the texts that we've read, we can, we can see and sense a similar theme, and I'm gonna read a couple of other passages, but let me summarize God's priorities as expressed in these passages in these three words, justice, righteousness, compassion. Let me suggest these words to be, how shall we call it, the, out, the practical outworking of this underlying life-giving principle of love that we spoke about earlier, justice, righteousness, compassion. I don't wanna spend time trying to define these terms, but as they're on the screen, I invite you to simply listen to some language of scripture and see how God's heart beats for these things. Some first, first reading comes from what we've already read. If we look at verse six of Isaiah 58, God responds to his people describing the kind of fasting he's chosen. He says this, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and when you see the naked to clothe him? and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. A portion of Isaiah 58 that we didn't read, the latter part of verse nine begins this way, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. This is the heart of God. If we were to go back to Isaiah chapter one where we, we found God speaking so forcefully against the, the false practice of these religious practices, God turns to his people at the end of that in Isaiah one verse 17 and he says these words, listen carefully, learn to do what is right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, Take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. The prophet Micah quite famously speaks to these issues in a verse that's become very well known, Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There's other Old Testament passages, but let's jump into the New Testament. 
The person which perhaps picks this up most strongly is the brother of Jesus, James. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Again, listen for the strength of James' language here. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Earlier I suggested Isaiah 58 is immense because of its tone and because of its message and because of its application. Let's take a moment to think about application. There are some passages of scripture, quite honestly, that preach themselves. And I hope that by listening to the words that I have just read that your heart is stirred and challenged. God's priorities are clearly stated and unambiguous in the passages that we've read. I'd like to make the observation that it's tempting sometimes for us in 2023, as we look back, we read about the persistent rebellion of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and we can look at how far they strayed from God's will and God's ways, and we can kind of cluck our tongues at them and say, how could they be that rebellious? It's true that we have the tremendous privilege of living in this post-Pentecost world, which has two major implications. We, my friends, we no longer need to rely on the Old Testament system of sacrifices and offerings and feasts in order to come near to God. Why? Because Jesus came and offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice. He opened the door. He invites us fully and freely into the presence of the holy God about whom we were singing. This is an immense privilege for us. Not only that, but, but post-Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us, those of us who have believed and received the story of Jesus. This is amazing language of Jesus where, as he's predicting this day while he was still on earth, he was said to his disciples, in that day my Father and I will come to you and we'll make our home with you. God lives within us. Such a remarkable truth and a remarkable privilege. Nevertheless, in the course of our worship, physical practices and rituals are necessary. We, we do things in order to worship God. One of the things we do is come to church. It's a, it's a physical thing we do. It's a thing that we can do without any heart, right? We can just do it because we do it every Sunday. Let me suggest some extremes. We can come and if, if our hearts are beating with God through this whole week and we're recognizing his love for us in every part of our, 
our life story, our life journey, and we see him working in our lives, and we come, and we come full of his love into the presence of God's people who are also experiencing his love. What an amazing experience of worship that is. But it's also possible for us to come just because we come. And we really haven't had any connection with God particularly, but we just come and it's a ritual. But it's, it's missing its meaning. But let me suggest also it's possible for us to come to church on Sunday and for the rest of our week, our hearts are really pulled so far away from God and consumed with anger and selfishness abusing people who are weaker than us. All those things are possible to do and still come to church on Sunday. Let me suggest to you that's odorous in the eyes of our God. Let me suggest three ways that we might take the challenge of Isaiah 58 into our lives in the coming weeks. My first suggestion is this, let us, let us, this is I guess kind of like an appeal, let us never lose sight of God's passionate love. Never lose sight of God's passionate love for you. That's what happened to Israel, they, they forgot that God was a God who loved them and God expresses that. You look through the Old Testament, you can see God expressing his love for them. He rescued them out of Egypt. He brought them to the mountain. He gave them the law. Why? Because he loved them. In Isaiah chapter 54, yes, I am quoting Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 54, verse five, the prophet Isaiah says this, for your maker is your husband. Can you get your heads around that? This God who is holy, 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 Isaiah says to the people, this maker, your maker is your husband. What kind of relationship does God want with his people? He wants a relationship of intimacy, a relationship of love, a relationship of wholehearted devotion to one another. At the culmination of history, as we read about it in the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns, as described in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, there will be a feast. What kind of a feast will it be? It'll be a wedding feast. And who's the bridegroom? The bridegroom is Jesus. And who's the bride? That's us, right? This is how much God loves you. He wants this relationship of intimacy with you. This is the whole point of the arc of the story of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave, right? It's sometimes hard. Well, let me turn it the other way around. It's sometimes easy to lose sight of how passionately God loves us. Sometimes the circumstances of life take over and it feels like God doesn't love us. But God does love you 
more than you can imagine today. Back in the year 2009, Brennan Manning wrote a book, and it's called The Furious Longing of God. The Furious Longing of God. And in that book, Brennan Manning describes from his own testimony how he came to discover that that God's love for him was so passionate that even when he was so broken, that God reached down and rescued him tenderly and brought him back to himself. God loves you furiously. It's a good read if you're looking for encouragement in that direction. So never lose sight, my friends, of the passionate love that God has for you. And then secondly, let me suggest another way perhaps we can take a lesson from Isaiah 58 is to cultivate that love, that love that God has for us, cultivate that love through healthy transformational practices. All right, Isaiah is busy condemning the empty practice of these religious practices, I'm recommending practicing with, with full of faith and full of love. There are many practices that have been recommended to us. Some people call them spiritual disciplines, healthy habits. These are practices that can help us to be reconnected with the love that God has for us. Practices like silence and solitude and scripture meditation and listening prayer and others can be very helpful in opening our minds and our hearts to God's desire for us. What is God's desire for us? The Apostle Paul has some amazing words in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about about what happens, what is God up to as we become his followers in this world. How do, we, how do we live in relationship with the God who saved us through Jesus? And listen how he describes it in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. He says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And in, in the context, he's comparing it and contrasting it with the day of Moses who had the veil over his face because he'd been in the presence of God. Paul's saying we don't have to do that because of what Jesus did, because the Spirit lives in us. We all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and look what's happening. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. My friends, listen very carefully. Christian faith is, by nature, transformational. It's not an invitation to religious practice. It's an invitation to a relationship of love with the God who made you, and it is transformational. If we truly engage that relationship of love, it will change us. And so through these practices in the midst of perhaps having these heart-to-heart conversations, we might ask God these kinds of questions. God, as I come to you, in what way, as I look back over this week, in what way was I selfish? In what way did I put other people down? In what way did I ignore the needs of others and just focus on me? Or for, from whom we might ask God in those quiet times, from whom 
do I need to ask forgiveness before I go and sit in church next time? Remember Jesus said to his friends one day, when you're going up to offer your offering and you remember that someone has something against you, what should you do? You should stop. You should go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your offering. We come back to our formal title of our sermon because I believe all of this comes to us from God. It's God's passionate call to us in Isaiah 58 that we would live out our faith authentically. Authenticity means wholeheartedly. And so we've looked at this never losing sight of God's passionate love and cultivating that love through healthy and transformational practices. The third and final suggestion for practical application is a question. It's an invitation to a question. I don't have an answer to this one. But let me invite us to ask. Let us ask God individually and also corporately how can we be instruments of justice and righteous and compassion in this week and this year? In my neighborhood, in my workplace, in my family, in my world. As we sit before some of these bold and passionate passages of scripture that we've read this morning, let our hearts be led by the Spirit of God to know how to respond. Central Baptist Church, our church is situated on a street with great need. And I am very grateful to each one of you who are part of this church, many people in this church who are in some way reaching out with compassion and kindness to the broken lives that are so close to us here. But we need to ask the question, we need to ask this question and keep asking this question both individually and corporately. How are we doing at making God's priorities our priorities? Is our heart beating with God's heart as he looks down on us as a church here on Pandora Avenue? Worship team, I invite you to come back. There are, if you look down the rest of the chapter which is written on your service sheet actually, what you'll find is there are two if-then sections that are written there. We haven't really looked at them closely and I won't even read the second one, but I would like to close by reading the first of those two if-then statements, verses nine through 12. And as I read it, I invite you to listen. Listen for what God wants to do in us and through us as we return to him with all of our hearts. Isaiah 58, verse nine, midway through verse nine says this. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, 
and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets within dwellings, streets with dwellings. We remind ourselves that in the local context, this is Israel moving back from exile to Jerusalem, and there's a lot of rebuilding that needed to take place. But let that rebuilding be a strong metaphor for us because God is still in the business of restoration and reconciliation and compassion and justice. May it be that our hearts will beat with His. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.